My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In this episode, I examine financial globalization. Ever since the financial crisis of 2008, questions about the relationship between international law and finance have been pervasive. They were brought to light by the subprime mortgage market or the collapse of the mortgage market, but also then by the exposure of banks and the risks associated with the innovation in financial instruments. In today's episode, I consider all of this, but also providing a foundation then by looking at the nature of capital movements, capital flows, and such. So return to what I said then a couple of weeks ago. Whenever we're studying international economic law, always important for you then to look for the laws that pertain either to resources or that pertain to markets. That's the basis then of commercial activity. I need resources and I need markets. Now I stand by that and what we're going to add to this now is an additional resource. And that resource is obviously capital. Capital is a resource. Now when we're looking at capital, we consider it through two lenses. On one hand, we have capital as equity. So equity, this is capital that I'm already in possession of. Assets, you own what you have, that in itself is equity. Your laptop is worth something, your clothes are worth something, and so on. But then you also have liquid. So that would be then the money in your pocket, the money in your bank account, and even to a certain extent, well, the line of credit you have access to, but that is not exactly capital because that is more of a loan that you're going to obtain. But it is liquidity that you have available to you. Now, when we speak about liquid, and I'll say this now and then we'll come to it a little later, you always want to bear in mind the issue of convertibility. Is this liquid convertible? And if so, convertible into what? So bear that in mind now. But I said when we look at capital, we look at it in two ways. One way we see it then as equity, but the other way is as credit. Credit. Now, credit is a means of you obtaining more, having access to capital that you do not actually own, that you're not in possession of. Many of you have student loans. Many of you have credit cards. Some of you might even own a car or at least own the lease of a car. I, for example, have a mortgage. People say to me, oh, you own this flat? And I say, no, the bank does. (laughs) And I'm slowly trying to obtain it from them. That is what you're doing. I own a mortgage, ultimately. So with the increase in trade, that was taking place in the 50s and 60s, there was necessarily a demand then from importers, from exporters for greater capital. They wanted more money. Why? Well, it's very simple. With more money, they can produce more tradable goods. So if this year I'm selling 1,000 televisions, next year I would like to sell 2,000 televisions, that means I need to buy more materials. I need to hire more staff. Maybe I have to build another factory. And I don't have the money to do it, so I turn to a bank and I borrow the money from them. So of course, as global trade is growing and growing in a colossal way, then of course the demand for capital increases as well. But there are two challenges then at the time in the 50s and the 60s. The first one, which I've already mentioned to you, the capital controls that are in place. Not so easy to move the capital from one place to another. So we need to find a way to ease those controls. But then the second one has to do with the convertibility. So I recall traveling to Canada and meeting with a couple of um, prospective students and they were telling me that they were going to study in the UK. Some of you may have even know a few Canadians who are here. There are a number of law schools, I think particularly Leicester and Sussex, where there are a large number of Canadian students. Canadian students like to come study in the UK because it allows them to bypass then the legal requirements or the requirements in Canada for qualification. In Canada, 
to qualify to practice law, you have to do an undergraduate degree and then do your professional degree. So it could take up to seven years. So instead, they bypassed that by coming to study here. And I said, oh, okay, well, how are you going to pay for it? Because international fees are quite high in the UK. And they said, oh, I'm going to borrow money in Canada. And I thought, ah, so now you have to think about the transaction costs associated with it. Because here, they're not going to accept Canadian dollars to pay for the tuition. They're not going to accept it in a shop to buy a sandwich. They're going to expect you to pay in pounds. So how then can this currency be converted? Can it be converted? Is it permitted? Well, that's another issue. So we have capital controls on one hand, but also the convertibility of the denomination on the other. I was going to say something about securitized products, financial assets, but I think I'll come to that a little later. Chris is smiling because he's saying, thank God, <laughs> no discussion of securitized products. Um, no. We'll come to it. But before we get to that, what I want to say, and this is the section where I'm trying to provide you with a little bit of the language so you can engage in the discussion uh, at a more sophisticated level. So there is, a, there is a push by some of our colleagues in the economics department to develop a law and economics program. And many students, such as yourselves, who study international economic law say, hey, that would be great. I would love to study law and economics. You're nodding, yes, yes, that would be fantastic. Well, this is until they learn, students learn, that you have to learn about macroeconomic policy and you have to take mathematics and then all the law students run for the hills. <laughs> but I do need to say a couple of words to you about macroeconomic policy. So we have what are known as macroeconomics and microeconomics. Macro and micro. Micro is easy to deal with. Micro has to do with behavior. The behavior of individuals, individuals as, say, buyers, individuals as sellers, the behavior of companies. We are looking at small economic decisions. Supply and demand. How much are you providing? How much are you, you obtaining? How much are you producing? We're looking at issues around pricing. So small economic decisions. Hence the term microeconomic policy. With financial institutions, the international financial institutions, the one we're going to study in the second half um, of uh, the coming hour and that we're going to continue to engage with for the remainder of the term, we are primarily interested in macroeconomic policy. There is obviously a link between macro and micro, but our focus is on macro. Macro is a big picture approach to economics. You're interested in GDP, right? gross domestic product interested in unemployment levels, 4%, 12%, 52% unemployment levels. You're looking at growth. Is the economy growing by 2%? Is it growing by 6%? How, what have I done that has triggered this type of growth? Can it be sustained? So on. Inflation, inflation levels. So in my country, in Egypt, at the moment, we're thrilled because inflation is down to 15%. We're thrilled, right? because a year ago it was at 33%. Why? Macroeconomic policy is what you use to examine then inflation. Now, macroeconomic policy can be divided into two types. We have fiscal policy and monetary policy. Fiscal and monetary with fiscal policy, our interest is twofold. One hand, government spending, government spending, and on the other hand, taxation, taxation. Now, government spending, consider, I've mentioned this before, HS2, high-speed train. This is a government initiative. The government is the one that is funding this. There might be some private partnerships, there might be some outsourcing, but ultimately, this is a government initiative. Most of the roads that are built, most of the hospitals that are constructed, often the case with schools as well. All of these are forms of public spending. And the government will engage in public spending for a variety of reasons. To generate greater employment, to find a use for the goods that are being manufactured, to try to grow the economy, 
to specialize in a particular sector. So when George Osborne, former finance minister of the UK, says government shouldn't be in the business of delivering mail, that was his statement before selling Royal Mail or selling a share of Royal Mail. It was nonsensical. Government is not in the business of sending or delivering mail. Government is in the business of spending to increase employment, to make use of manufactured goods, to build specialization in a particular sector. There are a variety of reasons why government would own Royal Mail. Public spending. Taxation, already been mentioned several times in this module, there's not much more for me to say. We can tax on goods, we can tax on services, we can tax on income, we can tax on corporate profit, we can tax on corporate revenue. There are a variety of ways that taxation can be pursued, and for those of you who are interested, you could take John Snape's module on taxation. That's fiscal policy, but there is also monetary policy. And just so we're clear, IFIs, international financial institutions, are very interested in both fiscal and monetary policy. Now, monetary policy has to do with the control of the money supply, supply of money. How much money is in circulation? We can play with the money in circulation by issuing bonds, by buying back bonds. So when you hear of a government saying that they are now buying back some of the bonds that they had issued, what are they trying to do in terms of the money supply? Say again? Increase it. Increase it? Are they trying to increase it? You're shaking your head no? You think decrease? Decrease. So consider, the money is out there. You have the bonds. You're issuing bonds. So when I'm issuing bonds, I'm merely now telling people, if you buy this bond, if you buy this bond, I will give you a rate of return of 4%. So you take the money that you have in your accounts, you take the money that you have under your mattresses, and you buy a bond. And now I have this cute little bond that is giving me a return of 4%. But what happened to all that money that I had before, that I was using to go to restaurants, that I was using to buy televisions, I have now invested it in a bond. So I am actually taking money out of circulation when I begin to issue bonds. But if I want to put money back into circulation, meaning I want to increase spending, or perhaps I want to increase investment, I now start to buy back the bonds because now I am giving you money in exchange for that promissory note that I had given you before. So now money is going back into the economy. So from a macroeconomic perspective, when looking at monetary policy and looking at the money supply, we consider how many bonds are out there, what type of policy is the government engaged in, in terms of buying back, in terms of issuing, and what is it doing about the interest rates? Monetary policy has everything to do. You see this every few months, Bank of England, what are they going to do? Are they going to raise it? Is it going to stay the same? What's going to happen? People are waiting, people are speculating, gambling. What does any of that mean? Well, consider, if interest rates go up, what happens to investment? It drops. Why? Right. Firms are risk averse. That's one element to it. But consider then, right? Your hand. Right. Price of a loan. Capital. The cost of capital is now higher. So I'm less likely to borrow. I need to improve my operations, improve my productivity, so I can improve then my profit margin if then I can afford to borrow money at the higher rate. Right. So we see then the impact that interest rate can have on investment. What impact will it have on the value of your currency? We said it has everything to do with the money supply. So interest rate goes up, currency goes up. Why? Value of money goes up, yes? Right. Potentially increase in foreign investment. Bingo. The value of the currency actually rises. Right. 
because now other people want your currency. So notice then how all of these things are happening. You're saying, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I don't understand anything about this. All right. Bounded rationality. There are a lot of things where it comes to the complexity where one action, we try to predict what impact is this going to have on everything else. Another important element then of monetary policy. So we have monetary policy. I mentioned to you control of money supply. We're also interested in the exchange rates. Exchange rates. I told you is that word convertibility. Is this currency convertible? Well, that depends on the laws that are in place. But we also look at the exchange rate and say, how much can it be converted for? How much can it be exchanged for? I give you an example, as I often do with my own country. Two years ago, now probably two and a half. One British pound would get me seven Egyptian pounds. Today, one British pound gets me 25 Egyptian pounds. People say, fantastic, he's living large when he travels to Egypt, sort of. And yet, for the locals, what are the implications now? Inflation. Right. Everything is more expensive, significantly more expensive. Anything that you imported before now costs three times as much. So the exchange rate. Now, there are two approaches. We have a variable exchange rate or a fixed exchange rate. Fixed exchange rate, this used to be the standard. When we speak about the gold standard, precisely that. We would fix the currency, the value of the currency, against the value of gold. So how much of currency A, how much gold could currency A buy, how much gold could currency B buy? And what central banks would do would be to manipulate the amount of money they had in circulation as a means of ensuring that their currency remained at the agreed amount. That's the nature of a fixed exchange rate. Obvious advantages to this? Well, if I'm an investor, I know that this is stable. They're going to maintain this currency at this level. Even once we abandoned the gold standard, a number of societies pegged, is the term, pegged their currency against a stronger currency, often the USD, sometimes these days the Euro, but often the USD. That was the case with Argentina. So Argentina throughout the 90s had set its currency on par with the dollar. So that means that if you bought an Argentinian peso, you knew the value of that Argentinian peso. Why? Because you knew the value of the USD. And we were so confident about the strength of the American economy and the strength of the American dollar that when they say they're going to stick to it, I have confidence in the Argentinian economy by extension. So now I'm willing to invest there because also they have released the capital controls that were in place. And if there's a problem, I can exit at the drop of a dime. And because it's pegged to the dollar, it becomes convertible. Others are willing to exchange that currency. Start to make sense now? Things start to fall into place. So the advantages, stability, higher investment, lower inflation. The disadvantages, all right, well, consider the case of Argentina. If the American dollar goes up, well, the value, the cost of Argentinian products goes up. If the American dollar goes down, the value of the return on the peso goes down. So you are now dependent upon another economy, the performance in another economy. There is also then the risk, always the risk of capital flight. Why? Because the returns are low. They're stable, I know exactly what I'm getting, but maybe I want to diversify my risk and I want to pursue a wider portfolio and some elements of those portfolios are going to be higher risk versus others that are lower risk and that because it's so stable, I know it's not gonna grow so much and maybe a return of three and a half percent is not enough. 
So potential for capital flight as well. Now, final two concepts that you need to understand before we can move into the second part. What are known as the, I think it was you who mentioned it maybe last week, um, the balance of payments. Balance of payments. So the balance of payments. What is the balance of payments? There are two measures. Currency accounts on one hand and capital accounts on the other. Current accounts, what are current accounts? Current accounts, the balance of trade in goods and services on one hand. How many goods are we producing? How many services are we producing? How many goods are we buying? How many services are we buying? I'm interested on that on one hand. In the other hand, I'm interested in net income also. Net income. With net income, we are looking at dividends, dividends from companies that I happen to own. We're interested in profits, also remittances. Remittances. Anyone know what remittances are? Really important for third world countries. Remittances? Precisely. So we have nationals who are living outside, diasporas, diasporic communities that are sending money home. So I think in the case of my own country, again, Egypt, remittances make up somewhere around 11% of GDP. It's a shocking amount. It means then that you actually cannot sustain your labor force at home. There is insufficient amount of employment, so people have to go elsewhere, which again points to the importance of liberalization of capital controls. How does that money get from one jurisdiction to another? The importance of convertibility, because they're earning in the domestic currency, but obviously having to convert it into another. So balance of trade on one hand, net income on the other. This provides you with your current account balance, and you are either in surplus or you are in deficit. You are either in surplus or in deficit. So you're producing lots of services, producing lots of goods, fantastic. How many of these goods and services are you buying? How many assets do you own abroad? And what type of dividends are they paying? What type of profits are you achieving with your company? You might be producing a lot of goods, but maybe your profit margin is really low. In which case you might not be earning, maybe you're even losing money, as is often the case with companies that are established. So, quite the dispute at the moment between the United States and China. China has a very sizable surplus against the United States. The United States has very sizable deficits. Why? Because Americans are buying a lot of Chinese products. But also because of, and this is what we're going to come to now, we have the current account on one hand, we have the capital account on the other. Capital account has to do with assets and liabilities, foreign assets and liabilities that a state is, that a state purchases. So we have a state that is buying foreign assets, that is buying liabilities. So consider, have a moment and look if you're interested, how many bonds, American bonds, does China own? What are the value of the bonds? This is money that the United States owes to China. So look at the bond market and you will understand that. But it's not just about that. What else do they own? Which assets do they have? Some years ago, there was quite the kerfuffle in the United States as a cuttery group uh, was going to purchase a number of ports in the United States. And the response from the American media was, hell no, Muslims owning our ports can't be. Well, genuinely, that was the reaction. And this was just the Qatari holding group was purchasing an asset in the United States. That would be measured in terms of the capital account. Who owns Manchester City Football Club, right? Who is from where? Qatar, yes. Simple as that. So when we look at it, and you say, what does Qatar own? Well, Qatar owns a number of assets within its own jurisdiction, but it also purchases assets abroad. 
Qatar's main export is oil. They generate a considerable amount of revenue. That revenue will be, some of it placed in banks, some of it will be placed in productive activity, and others will be placed in various assets that yield a, vari a variation of returns. So the football club is one of them. I think half of London is the other. <laughs> so, um, you know, Warwick has an office in the Shard, right? I actually have a campus, an office in the Shard. The Shard itself is owned by the Qataris. Right? There are a variety of assets that are owned then by. But we look at it and again we say it's not Qataris, and this is why I wanted to pull away from the Mansur, it's not the character. We're understanding that the state is itself purchasing assets elsewhere. And that appears then in its capital account. Are we seeing a growth in its stock of assets, in the stock of liabilities it holds against another state? Sometimes those assets will be FDI, so foreign direct investment. They'll buy a football club. That is an investment. Other times, they'll buy a share of a company. Simple as that. That we refer to as an equity holding. I'm buying a share of a company. And I'm doing that to improve not just my capital account, but also my current account. Why? What do I gain from a company that would be factored into my current account? That I mentioned, net income. What type of income is that? Dividends, precisely. Precisely. And then, of course, we have the growth in foreign liabilities, and this is where you would buy um, bonds and such of another country. So, a bit of a challenge. Now you're wishing for the days where I was talking about mercantilism. <laughs> Damn it, why is this not theoretical? This module is not theoretical enough. I need more. No. Essential for you to understand the bare bones of economics to understand international economic law. That's a given. Just as I said to you in the beginning, you had to understand something about international law and why then a corporation is not a subject of international law, even if they happen to be an actor of international law, even if they happen to influence international law, they're still not a subject of international law. You understand that if you studied international law. To understand why we have protectionist measures, or why we liberalize, you study a little bit then of political economy, which explains these theories. To understand the difference then between current accounts, capital accounts, you have to know something about macroeconomic policy. To understand macroeconomic policy is then to understand the basics of international economic law, where we engage in the liberalization of a variety of sectors that has an impact on a state's revenue, meaning on a state's economic activity. So in the final 30 minutes, what I'd like us to engage with is how this liberalization then of domestic finance has actually taken place, and then how this itself has led to the challenges that we face in terms of the regulation of international finance. So, Capital controls, I've already told you about. Give you an example of a capital control. I actually realize I probably haven't said that. So capital controls, why would a state put in place capital controls? So we have liberalization of finance. Before we get to the liberalization of finance, we have a mercantile system, a nation state based system that is bounded, that is protected. One of the ways that a state has protected itself is putting in place capital controls that prevent the outflow and the inflow of capital. Why might a state do that? Why might it say, hey, I'm going to restrict the flow of capital in and out? of my jurisdiction. Why? What might be the rationale? Well, consider it an example of it then. Asian financial crisis. What? So, George Soros looks at the situation, says, meh, seems a little iffy to me, and starts pulling out money. Other investors notice what Soros is doing, and what do they do? They pull out their money as well. 
And so now all the big investors are taking out their money, and then the mid-sized investors start taking out their money, and then the smaller investors start taking out their money. And effectively what you have is what is often referred to as a run on either the banks or a run on the capital markets. People have lost confidence. And because they've lost confidence, they want out. Because they say the risk is too high. So now they want to escape. Now that in itself can prove, as it did for the Asians, can prove cataclysmic. So I form a miniature form of capital control, which I know was mentioned even in one of your seminars, again with Greece, Greek financial crisis. You go to the ATM and there's a limit of 60 euro. And there's a queue of a kilometer to get the money out because a lot of the machines aren't operating. Capital control. What are you trying to prevent? You're trying to prevent people from taking out their money. These controls are put in place to stabilize the economy. So yes, we want to liberalize because it's going to increase investment, but it also has the potential to increase flight. And that flight can also prove destabilizing, particularly if those who are fleeing are not nationals, are not tied to the state, do not have investments in the state, meaning they don't suffer the consequences of that flight. So other forms of capital controls that would have been in place historically had to do with how much foreign assets or currencies could be brought in, foreign equity could be brought in, versus how much could depart. So if you were to take even myself as an example, I said before, I am not a citizen here, and when I went to the bank to borrow money as a foreigner, I had to come up with a 20% down payment on the value of my mortgage. Contrast that with a domestic who has to come up with 5%. Why the differential? Anyone have any ideas? Why would you charge a foreigner more than you would charge a local? Say again? So I can suffer more consequences? You're right, you're getting there. Keep going with that though. Higher risk. I don't have the same bonds, ties to this place. So they need to create a higher deposit to intensify my link to this place and also to mediate the risk associated with it. Because we say, what happens tomorrow if they go into negative equity? They're gone. And it's interesting, in some, um, you had the uh, financial crisis also in uh, Doha, so some years ago, and you went to the airport and you actually couldn't park your vehicle. And why couldn't you park your vehicle? Because of all the people who had abandoned their leased cars. These were foreigners who said, this economy is tanking, I am out of here. And they left. So the cars remain behind, as does the debt, because they're a foreigner and they have that possibility of escape. So this is the rationale then behind capital controls. You're trying to maintain stability at the domestic level. But maintaining that stability can also inhibit then investment. And so if you want to grow your economy, we try to incentivize the investment by telling investors they can repatriate the funds that, so repatriate either their profits or repatriate their investment. Now, capital controls, just so we're clear, differ very much from the type of regulations, the limits that we place on internal transactions. So whenever we think of capital controls, we are thinking external transactions, often involving cross-border movement then of financial instruments, of capital. Internally, this is something dis distinct. So, give you an example, how much money can a bank loan? Well, that is determined by law. They can borrow a certain amount based upon how much they have on reserve. Now, depending on the size of the bank, that can be 10%. It could also be as low as 3%. And it used to be as high as 15%. Meaning, 
if you had one million pounds on reserve, you could loan up to so much more based upon the value of that one million against what you're planning on loaning. Now that is standard within a domestic system to prevent high levels of risk, to prevent speculation. I said to you before that when it comes to banking, when it comes to finance, we're interested in risk management. So one way that you placate or that you minimize risk is by reducing how much the ratio of what can be loaned against what you have. So you have to have that money on account. You might also put in place, as most banks or most states have done, certain in um, insurance schemes. So those who deposit money, their money is protected to a certain level. All of these are what we term prudential. You are being prudential in ensuring then that you have a stable banking system. Has anyone heard of a mutual bank? Mutual banks are really interesting because they only loan what they have. So if she deposits a million pounds, well now they can loan a million pounds. That is very different than from a standard commercial bank, which loans, depending on the size of the bank, upwards of 3 to 10 to 15, or that's all they have to have on reserve. So notice then how complex the picture becomes. I'm not giving you all this information to confuse you, I'm giving you all this information so that you're capable of engaging with international financial law. So with international economic law, we're interested in trade, and we'll be talking about trade next week. But alongside trade, trade has to be understood through the lens of finance. Why? Because trade relates then to the current accounts. Trade also pertains then to direct investment, foreign direct investment, which brings in the capital account as well. The reason all of this can happen is because we've reduced, so reduced, we've released then a number of capital controls that were in place. We've facilitated the convertibility of currencies. So now you don't think twice when you have whichever foreign currency you go somewhere, you expect to be able to exchange it for whichever currency you please. That is how convertible it is. And maybe you shop around for transaction fees, but ultimately there's no doubt in your mind that whatever currency you have on a hand can be converted into something else. And that was not always the case. So when studying international financial law, be clear that we have to distinguish between the regulatory regimes that are put at the domestic level to regulate domestic affairs, such as domestic banking, but also the regulations that are put in place to regulate the activities the domestic bank is engaged in at the cross-border level. So domestic banks, some of you may, like myself, you know, the easiest one I could get a bank account when I first moved here was Halifax. Some of you probably with Halifax as well. Halifax operates in a domestic market. But then Halifax is also part of Lloyd's. And they operate in an international market. So the pressures that they face within an international market are differ from the type of pressures that they face within a domestic market. So the regulatory regimes that we put in place have to be adjusted accordingly in the final 20 minutes. All right? What I'm really interested in, and what I think you'll be interested in, are these points of international financial integration. So those points of international financial integration are what create then the basis for, or the need for, a global financial architecture, meaning international financial law. Without those points of integration, there would be no need because everything would be happening at the domestic level. Now, when we think of the international financial architecture, Consider that the objective is one primarily to safeguard, to safeguard. Now, what do I mean by this? The capitalists, the industrialists, um, the uh, traders, all of them are interested in trying to liberalize as much as possible because they want to see the free flow of their goods, of their money, whatever it happens to be. They're interested in engaging in those business activities. But we understand that a whole bunch of people doing all of that 
itself can become chaotic and can lead to crises as we've experienced in the past. So the state, alongside some of the private sector, come in and say, all right, let's put in place then some type of governance structure, some type of regulatory regime to maintain stability within the monetary system and within the financial system. Maintain stability in the monetary system and the financial system. Now, just so we're clear, the financial system dwarfs the monetary system, both in size and in complexity. And in fact, as an aside, this is sort of funny. Uh, fun, well, not so funny for us, really. Um, so the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May has negotiated covers goods. This is what we're interested in very much then, the trade in goods. So we're looking at agricultural products. There's a few things around fish. We're talking about cars. It covers goods. But consider that between 1970 and 2007, the ratio of the trade in financial instruments to the trade in goods. In 1970, one to one. So the value of goods versus the value of financial instruments. But I said to you, that was, those were the embryonic stages of the trade in financial instruments. Today, so it's one to one, today, 50 to one. 80% of the UK's GDP, 80, comes not from the production of goods, but from the sale of services. And the biggest services market in the world is the EU. Do we understand how devastating this will be for the British economy? And consider, here's a final figure there, right? Make it even worse. Financial services, ready? Financial services. That is the UK's, one of the UK's greatest exports. Financial services. In terms of tax revenue, financial services provide 60% of the government's tax revenue. So look at those numbers. 50 to one financial instruments versus goods, 50 to 1. 80% of the GDP comes from the trade in services. 60% of tax revenue in the UK comes from the trade in financial services. And the agreement that the politicians are bashing their heads over is for, wait, 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 oh, right, here, the trade in goods. That is the size of it in contrast to everything else. Fascinating, is it not? So, when we look at monetary, we're looking at preserving then the integrity, we're trying to safeguard the monetary system, safeguard the financial system. With the monetary system, we're interested in safeguarding exchange rates, ensuring then that exchange rates remain stable. We don't want to see spikes and drops and everything. Everything needs to be stable. Why? There are a variety of economic transactions, commitments that have been made. And if you have a massive drop, then all of a sudden, then the buyers don't have the money to pay for the goods. So it's in the interest of everybody involved that we maintain stability. So we look at exchange rates and there's also has to do with payment arrangements as well, but we don't need to worry so much about that. Now on the financial side, this is where it gets to be interesting. The financial side, those who are entrusted with safeguarding then the stability, safeguarding the stability of the financial system, include governments, yes, but also financial institutions, including the ones we're going to look at next or not in two weeks, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, but also private investors. Now again, this is why we refer to them as formal and informal arrangements, why we speak of an architecture or a framework rather than just a regulatory regime. Because the people involved are not all subjects of international law. So these, with the financial system, what is being regulated is the movement, the cross-border exchange of financial instruments. And when we speak of financial instruments, it can be 
um, collectives of uh, mortgages. It can be credit card debt. It can be bonds. There are a variety of things that it can be. Your debt as students here in the UK has been sold. Remember reading about this? It's been sold. It didn't bring back as much as the government had hoped because this was something that the government had put out to the market. And they say the return you can expect from these students is X. And so it's packaged in this way. We'll pool together these thousands, if not tens of thousands of students, their debt. The return on all of this is X. And now we put it out then to the markets to see who's interested in buying it. Simple as that. That is the nature of a financial instrument. But the challenge, and this I think is a good one to conclude on, the challenge is the risk associated with these activities. And the risk itself is tied to what I've mentioned several times already, bounded rationality. But even more important than that, the notion of asymmetric information. You've heard of this then, right? Asymmetric information. Now that's a fascinating concept. The idea then that we do not have perfect information and because we do not have perfect information it is near impossible for us to make a rational choice. If we had perfect information we can make a rational choice but since we have imperfect information then it's not possible for us to make a rational choice. But we don't just refer to this as imperfect information we speak of asymmetric information. And with asymmetric, we're pointing to the disparity in information that is circulating. So I, as a depositor, if I have money and I want to invest it in something, I have my reasons for investing it. Now the bank manager who is taking this money they have their reasons for taking this money as well. I don't know the intentions of the bank manager, and I don't know if they've given me a mortgage, and given her a mortgage, and her, and him, and her, and so on and so forth, because their incentive package involves them trying to move as many mortgages as possible. So I don't know what their motivation is. But they don't know what my motivation is. And maybe I'm borrowing this money, or maybe I'm depositing this money with the intention of not paying my debt back. That actually happens. <laughs> so a uh, good friend of mine, actually, he was going to be uh, declared bankrupt within a certain amount of time. So he started <laughs> applying for all kinds of unsecured loans. And I look at him and say, dude, really? <laughs> and he says, it's unsecured. What does it matter? So he was planning on declaring bankruptcy anyway. And he ultimately did. So is he the only person who does this? No, of course not. There are a variety of financiers. There are a variety that understand that Money can be made, not just through productive activity, but also through destructive activity. Hence why people short sell. I'm betting that things are going to go badly for you and your company. Short selling, right? you might want to look into that if you're interested. So productive and destructive. So I then, have since the bank manager doesn't know what I'm going to do I may do like Soros and pull out all my money you have no way of knowing or as happened and as the central bank tried to do with its quantitative easing policy they were trying to get more money in circulation so they can get more economic activity and the banks when they received this money from the central bank said great thank you very much and they began hoarding and they weren't loaning money and they weren't loaning money because they said the risk is too high. We don't know exactly what's going to happen right now, so we're going to hoard money. We're going to invest in some stable stocks or stable assets. So now we have this situation where asymmetric information can also undermine the stability 
of the market. So what do you need then? You need strong insurance schemes to ensure that depositors are confident that if anything happens, their money will still be there. But then you also need strong regulation to ensure that bank managers do not behave in this duplicitous fashion. But then you also need strong capital controls and loose capital controls. So we find ourselves in a situation where we really need a strong state and strong regulation when there's a push to neoliberalize, to deregulate, to loosen. That contradiction is something that we've been incapable of resolving and been incapable of resolving because this issue has only been around for about a generation if not a generation and a half. That is it. So understand and what I hope you take away and I'll conclude on this the IMF and World Bank which we will discuss in a couple of weeks links to the World Trade Organization which we'll also discuss in a couple of weeks. Each one serves a particular purpose related to markets and resources. One of the resources that we are heavily concerned with when it comes to regulating is capital. Capital either exists in the way in what you have, which is very easy, or what you might be able to obtain, credit, which is a lot more complex. But it's not just about getting the credit, meaning being provided with a loan so that you can pursue this productive activity. It is also your ability to move the funds from one locale to another. So we're interested there in capital controls, in convertibility. So this is where that notion of freedom that we've been hearing, that's coming out of our ears in all this discussion about Brexit. The four freedoms, goods, services, people, and capital. You have to be able to move. That is what's part of it. So the UK has decided it does not want to be a part of that now. But considering everything that I just explained to you, particularly about the interdependence, is it even possible to extricate yourself from this system? And if so, what are the costs associated with it? So, uh, enjoy your reading week and see you in two weeks.